0: Hello,
1: and thanks for joining us here for episode 736 with Amy Herman. Amy has some pro tips on problem solving with some fresh perspectives taken from art. Not the most problem solving of places, and yet she brings some goods. you'll learn, one, what to do when you don't know what to do. Two, three simple steps for smarter problem-solving. And three, the top two do's and don'ts of problem-solving. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we've referenced, drop on by awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP736. And if you're at awesomeatyourjob.com, check out some of our goodies like the gold nugget summary emails, the full-text searchable transcripts, the course for 10 days to winning at work to slash waste out of your work week and get home earlier do more fun, cool stuff goodies over at at awesomeatyourjob.com. And here's some goodies about Amy. Amy Herman is the founder and president of The Art of Perception, Inc., a New York-based organization that conducts professional development courses for leaders around the world, from secret service agents to prison wardens. Herman was the head of education at the Frick Collection for over 10 years. She's an art historian and an attorney, and Amy holds a BA in International Affairs from Lafayette College, a JD from the National Law Center, and an MA in Art History from Hunter College. Amy is a world-renowned speaker, and she's been featured on CBS Evening News, the BBC, and in countless print publications, including the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and many others. Big thanks to Amy for sharing her wisdom with us, and big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. Now here's Amy. Amy, welcome to how to be awesome
2: at your job. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here.
1: Well, I'm excited to get your perspectives on art and problem solving and more. Could we start with maybe hearing what's been one of the most influential pieces of art in your life? Like what is a piece that has stuck with you and made an impact and tell us that story.
2: Well, you know, that changes almost every day because every time I see a work of art that takes my breath away, I think, oh, that's it, that's life-changing. And luckily for me, that happens quite often. Um, But the work of art that really got me thinking so much about this book and about the work that I do is a painting from 1819 by Jericho, and it's called The Raft of the Medusa. And the, the reason I talk about this work so much, it's really a horrific painting, it shows the worst of humanity, but just the tiniest bit of hope. And it's, it's a huge painting. It's 23 feet by 16 feet. It takes up a whole wall at the Louvre. Oh, dog. And it shows the absolute worst that can result from incompetence and from power. And yet there is the slightest bit of hope in retelling the story of how the painting came to be and how these people survived really has been inspirational and I've been able to apply it in so many different situations. So I've been thinking a lot and I open my new book with The Raft of the Medusa and I close with it as well. So I think a lot about that work of art.
1: Well, we'll certainly link to an image of that for the visual side of things in a, in a podcast interview. And uh, the sliver of hope, so there's the story, I, I will in reading your introduction, I gazed upon it. I could fast well in a much smaller um, <laughs> amount of real estate, you know, uh-huh, on, then on the my screen. offers. screen, <laughs> um, and uh, and maybe only for about twenty seconds, which I imagine you would say is not nearly enough to take in the the depths. But I was just like, oh man, that's a real cluster.
2: <laughs> <laughs> that's so, exactly uh, what it is.
1: So, w- w- is there hope depicted in that image that I that I overlooked? <laughs>
2: Believe it or not, and you're not alone in overlooking the hope, because very, very faintly on the horizon line, if you really, really squint your eyes, the rescue ship can be seen. Ah. Yes, the rescue ship is there. And what I love is the painting also does away with discrimination, and there is a Black man at the top of the pyramid who's flagging down the rescue ship. And that was a real scandal, Back in the 19th century, to have a black man was the one who rescued everybody because he was the one who was able to flag down the ship. But the ship is not apparent. Don't feel bad for not seeing it. It's so small and it's on the horizon. And it reminds us all that, you know, sometimes hope is just out of our grasp and we have to look a little bit harder and really try to find it. And it really is within our grasp. And that's what I hope that readers of the book will be able to understand and be able to apply to their own lives.
1: hmm well, well, I like that. Hope, hope may be just beyond my immediately obvious perception, just as it, it was in that image. And um, I'll chew on that. Thank you. Well, let's, let's talk about problem solving here. You've spent a lot of time thinking about this, training people in this, learning and researching on this. Can you share maybe one of the most strikingly, maybe surprising, fascinating, counterintuitive discoveries you've made about problem solving over the course of your career?
2: I have. And I'd love to share one of the things because it's almost counterintuitive. But I'm going to start by telling you about a process in Japan when ceramicists and potters, when they make bowls and vases and cups, it's inevitable that some of those vases and cups are going to come out broken or asymmetrical or imperfect. And instead of throwing that flawed pottery away, what these Japanese ceramicists do is they fill the cracks in with gold and silver and platinum lacquer. And the process is called kintsugi. And it means to repair with gold, to fill in the cracks with gold. And what happens to each of those objects is they become more precious and more valuable than had they been perfect in the first place. And what I take away from the process of kintsugi is none of the people that I work with are potters or ceramicists, but I ask them the question. How are you practicing kintsugi? How are you fixing what's broken with resources that you already have? And the beautiful thing about kintsugi is it honors the struggle, it brings the mistakes to the fore. So rather than walking away from our mistakes and saying, I'm gonna do better next time and I'm gonna make it perfect, we're not striving for perfection. I wanna bring our mistakes to the fore. So not only can we honor the struggle that we went through to solve a problem, but others can see our mistakes. And see how we got there. Because I hate to break it to you, nobody's perfect. (laughs) And there is no perfect solution. So the idea of Kintsugi, it's such a beautiful concept. And it allows us to make our mistakes and to honor those mistakes in trying to fix them.
1: Beautiful, thank you. So Kintsugi really is a beautiful visual representation of, of that very process, that notion of we have some mistakes and we're going to to fill them in and make it all the more useful in terms of maybe sharing the mistakes and lessons learned with others so that that, that wisdom can proliferate. That's, that's really cool. Can you share a cool example of this in practice?
2: Absolutely. In the field of medicine, doctors- Sometimes, it, this takes place in hospitals all across the country, and sometimes it's done weekly, sometimes it's done every two weeks or every month. Doctors go behind closed doors and they have something called M&M, and M&M stands for morbidity and mortality, kind of a downer of a title. But what they do is they go around the table and they talk about what went wrong, who misread the MRI, who got the wrong prescription, who died and what went wrong. And by sharing all their mistakes, not only does it alleviate the guilt of the individual person and recognize that we all make mistakes, but also we can learn from each other's mistakes because we're human and things will go wrong. And so just the idea of M&M, that doctors are willing to go behind the door and talk about what went wrong. I wish we had m M&M in every profession, the way Kintsugi enables us to visualize what went wrong and actually honor that struggle medicine says okay you know what we're not perfect things go wrong lives are lost we gave the wrong medicines let's all learn from it collectively and keep moving
1: well that is a powerful example because that says that's about as high stakes as it gets lives were lost because of mistake i made and um and that happens in, in law enforcement and military and uh, many of your clients and, and medicine, certainly. And it, it, I was just thinking, one of my first thoughts was, boy, well, in this litigious age, it's like behind closed doors is right. I
2: like, can give you one more example that's not so high stakes.
1: Well, I, I guess maybe first, with that practice, which, which I, indeed I agree with you, there are, are many other fields where that could be applied excellently, I'm curious, how do folks get past some of the hangups associated with like the vulnerability and trying to cover your rear end and liability? I, I think like we, we've had Amy Edmondson on talking about psychological safety and, and other guests, and that's often hard to to get to. But a, a, as you describe it, it sounds like this is just par for the course in in most uh, hospital environments.
2: You know, it's it's a recognition of the fact that we are all human. One of the things that I talk about across the professional spectrum is that when you are missing a critical piece of information, and it can happen whether you are a postal worker, a prison warden, a beekeeper, a doctor, or a Navy SEAL, you're missing a piece of information. And in the intelligence world, they call it an intel gap. And I tell all of the people that I work with that no matter how big the intel gap is, you have one more source of information that you can rely on, you can default to your humanity. And if you default, because before we're doctors and patients and lawyers and clients and police officers and suspects, we are all human. And if you don't know what to do next because of an intel gap, ask yourself and say, you know what, if I was this guy's father or uncle or friend, what would I do? And default to your humanity. And you have this whole rich source of information that you can really rely on and very rarely will it let you down.
1: Yeah, that, that, that's really beautiful because in, in those instances, uh, humanity that really strikes, it, it, it kind of automatically stirs up sort of virtuous stuff <laughs> like humility, like compassion, <laughs> uh, like, hey, man, we don't quite know what's going on here. But you know what? If it were my kid, I'd want to test X, Y, and Z. So what do you say? <laughs> and you keep it moving.
2: That's exactly right. And you know what's so interesting? Sometimes it comes down to the smallest of human interactions. I had a group of army officers on the ground in a foreign country, and it was a hostile country, but they were at the local village and they were looking for help in the local village. And none of the women would talk to the army officers. And you know they they weren't forceful and they default to their humanity. And finally, one of them asked in the other language, Why are you not speaking with us? And you know what it was? It was because the army officers were wearing reflective sunglasses and women in this village can't make eye contact with men. And if they didn't know if they were making eye contact or not, they wouldn't talk to them. So it all came down to sunglasses. But I find what's universal is sometimes we have to ask hard questions. Why isn't this working? Why can't I fix this? To find the solution.
1: Yeah, you're right. It it is a hard question in that there is again some vulnerability in terms of, well, you know, you you smell. You're uh you're you've been very rude to us. You were involved in an accident that harmed a family member of mine. You know, a couple of weeks ago. It, it it is a hard question. Like, why aren't you talking to us? And yeah, that could surface some surprisingly simple solutions. Okay, sure. Taking off glasses can do. Awesome. Well, so we we've already gone deep into into Kintsugi. Can you tell us then your your book fixed? How to Perfect the Fine Art of Problem Solving. What's sort of the the main idea or thesis here?
2: The main idea of the book is to take the artist's creative process, how artists create works of art, and use that as a template to solve problems from minor annoyances to intractable dilemmas. Let's face it, everything is broken right now. (laughs) Everything. And when I started writing this book, we weren't even under the crunch of pandemic. I had no idea what we were going to be facing. And in so many cases, solutions from the past, yesterday's solutions are not going to solve tomorrow's problems. And so I wanted to create this template that everybody could use, regardless of their profession, regardless of their educational level. How can we make problems more approachable? And what's a template everybody can solve? And I use the artist's process to create a work of art. Because I'm a lawyer and an art historian, I like to think I have a logical mind, but I also wanted to tap into the creative process. So I broke the book down into three sections, three really easy sections, prep, draft, and exhibit. How do we prep the problem? How do we draft our solutions? And how do we bring them into the world? And each of those sections is broken down into subsections, but it all goes back to prep, draft, and exhibit. And I wanted the process to be simple. We all have enough on our plates. I don't need to give people fancy acronyms and things to remember. Oh, Amy said in her book, we have to do A, B, C, and D. Nobody has time for that. How can we break problems into digestible pieces? And how can we not be afraid to engage in conversation the way artists for millennia have been creating works of art? This is not the time to fool with that success. Let's leverage it. Let's use that approach to try to solve our own problems.
1: Hmm. Well, intriguing. So that's fun, and a lot of your clients are—I don't know what the word is—hardcore.
2: <laughs> that's a good way to put it. They're hardcore.
1: I don't know. Secret Service, NATO, FBI, Interpol. It's like uh, it, it, in terms of not having time. I imagine their their patience for mm. quote unquote out there or or frilly or soft tools, you know, might be limited. If I'm purely speculating, you can confirm or deny.
2: You're speculating correctly.
1: <laughs> so so given that, I, I'm curious, could you maybe walk us through an example of, uh, we'll just call them a hardcore uh, client, applying some of this prep draft exhibit problem-solving process used from the artistic approach to, to solve something?
2: Absolutely. And I'll tell you about one of my favorite clients. One of my favorite clients is the NBA, National Basketball Association. And they brought me to Las Vegas, and I was going to lead a session of my program for about 250 heads of security for the NBA. Picture these guys. They're the ones on the court. They've got an earpiece in their ear. They're dressed in a suit. They're watching the players, the GM, the audience. They're making sure everybody is safe, there's no violence, and that game is going to go forward. Can you picture the scene? Mm -hmm, Sure. So the woman who introduces me gets up on the stage and she reads from a piece of paper and says, "Uh, Amy Herman's here from New York, and she's going to teach us how to look at works of art so you can do your job more effectively. Uh... Every head went down to their phone. That was like the trigger to go start scrolling on your phone. So I get up on the stage and I say, you know what? We're going to have an instant replay. You're going to be looking at art for the next two hours. I'm in charge. And you're going to leave here thinking about your job differently than you came in. And I broke them into pairs and I said, one of you close your eyes, one of you keep your eyes open. And I put a work of art up and they had 45 seconds to describe it to their partner so that they could get the best visual image of what it was they were looking at. They had to look at a work of art. They had to decide. They had to prep. What am I going to say? Then they had to run it through their mind and then they had to exhibit. They had to tell their partner the best possible version of something they had never seen before and for the next two hours flew Because I brought them new data. I brought them works of art. Nobody trains the NBA to look at works of art to think about how they do their job. But to think about the creative process, every single basketball game, no two games are ever the same. No two teams are the same. No two security concerns are the same. No two cities are the same. And the game always changes from painting to painting to painting. And how do you assess that work of art you're looking at? How do you redraft it in your head? And how do you articulate it on that little microphone in your ear? because the safety and the success of that game is in your hands. And at the end of the session, I said to them, you know, the NBA brought a copy of my book for each of you. Before you go to your cocktail party, I'll be at the back signing your books. And I thought, oh my God, I'm going to be all alone back there. Every single one of them stopped to sign a book. And there were hugs all around because so many of them were NYPD officers from back home. And it made me realize, doesn't matter what you do, whether you're on the basketball court or you are in hostile territory, or you are the night nurse, you're going to face problems that are unforeseen. And I want to be able to help you solve them.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, well, that's intriguing because in uh, at first you might say, I don't see the, the connection at all between looking at art and security. But then this is, oh yes, sure enough, very often in that job, you look at something and you have to describe that something well <laughs> to collaborators, or you might have a bit of a stickier situation <laughs> if you did not describe it as well in terms of misunderstandings and, and over or under reactions and, and all that sort of thing.
2: If I can bring in a quote that applies to everybody, and it's a quote from the 19th century from Henry James, but it's what I, a quote that I give to every single one of my sessions. And I say, try to be that person on whom nothing is lost. Mm-hmm.
1: That's cool.
2: Try to be the person on whom nothing is lost. So when you look at a work of art, I want you to tell me not only what you see, but what are you missing? Hmm.
1: Say more about that. Tell me, tell you not only what I see, but what's missing, like what I am missing from the art?
2: Not only what you're missing, what you expected to be there, assumptions you had that aren't there. This is a concept that I stole from emergency medicine. It's called the pertinent negative. It means articulating what's not there in addition to what is there to actually give a more accurate picture of what you're looking at. So here's the example. If a patient comes into the emergency room and let's say the attending physician thinks the patient has pneumonia, pneumonia has three symptoms. Symptom one is present. Symptom two is present. But if symptom three is absent, it's the pertinent negative you need to say that it's not there because then you know it's not pneumonia. So when you arrive at a crime scene and you hear on the radio all the details, well, you expected there to be blood. Well, there's not blood everywhere. You need to say there isn't blood everywhere. It's not just that I see disarray and I see shell casings. There is no blood. Because when you say what you see, you're only giving half the picture, so art gives us this perfect vehicle. Well, I noticed all these blues and yellows and trees in the picture, but I noticed there were no humans in the picture. There was no sunshine in the picture. We're actually getting to the other side of the issue to tell people not only what we see, but what we don't see. The pertinent negative is a really powerful tool.
1: Well, that that is handy. I guess I'm thinking about all sorts of conversations, you know, in terms of we had a a guest who talked about not just being provided an explanation, but are you being provided evidence? And there's a, quite a difference. It's like
2: absolutely
1: and, and so often we we make do with an explanation like oh okay, I guess I guess that makes some sense <laughs> you know so I, so I can move along versus if you really got your antenna up and you're, you're thinking critically and, and, and alertly, you can say, okay, so that that might be a plausible story. But to have the evidence that that is, in fact, you know, what did occur, that'd be great to see. Or in a conversation in terms of uh, maybe what I didn't hear was an apology.
2: That's exactly right.
1: <laughs> you know, what I didn't hear was a commitment to do something differently. And, and so that's, that, that's a cool tool, the, the pertinent negative from ER folk. If, if I could, I will say, have you borrowed some nifty things from law enforcement that, that in terms of a ready-to-go tool like that you could share?
2: I have. Actually, I have two tools that I wanted to share. Let's do it. One of them, just to build on the pertinent negative, is in warfare, in modern warfare, in World War II. Not the video game. Nope, not the video modern game. Warfare. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't even know there was such a thing, so uh, I'm learning from duty, you. Call Duty
1: modern warfare, of course.
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, my son would know that. <laughs> In World War II, the Royal Air Force sent their planes out, their fighter planes out, and they suffered heavily at the hands of German anti-aircraft fire. And when the planes came back, the Royal Air Force didn't have enough armor to reinforce the whole plane before they sent them out again to fight. So the decision was made by the Royal Air Force, let's just fix the planes where they were damaged. But it was a mathematician, a single mathematician who was dissenting and said, you're looking at this the wrong way. He said, you need to look at these planes to see where they weren't damaged. And that's where you need to reinforce them because the planes that were damaged in those areas didn't come back. Hmm. Zing, yeah. See how the pertinent negative works. So you get on the other side of the issue. And just today I was talking with one of my colleagues in the NYPD and we were talking about different applications of the program. And he said, you know, one of the things that you taught us is that when we get to the crime scene, We hear about the crime scene, we hear it on the radio, we get there. We know what we're expecting. Not only do we have to overcome confirmation bias, thinking, you know, been there, done that, I know what I'm going to find. But you've instilled in us that we need to go back, retrace our steps, and walk into the crime scene again to notice what we didn't see the first time. What's on the staircase? What's on the landing? What's in the garbage can? He said, how many times have I found a weapon that's been thrown outside the crime scene and is never within the confines of where we're looking?
1: Hmm. So the the retracing the steps, I mean, I'm thinking, how does that work mentally? So, okay, I I go to the crime scene once, I take a good look around, and then I just pretend that I
2: didn't do that? or, Or what do you think? I put the whole thing in reverse, and I enter again. Because your eyes, you're already planning on what you're going to see. And what confirmation bias is, is you have an idea in your head of what you're going to see, and your brain will seek out those things to confirm what's already in your brain. But when you make it a practice to say, okay, I'm here, I'm going to step out and walk again and try to notice what I didn't see before. So one of the assignments that I give to my classes, if I see them over a course of two days... Their assignment is when they leave to come back and tell me something that they noticed that night on the way home that they wouldn't have seen before. And it forces you to look outside of your comfort zone because we're all trying to get from point A to point B, and we forget that there are points C through Z out there.
1: You know, that's funny. I think think about that, that challenge, notice something you haven't noticed before, I guess I'm thinking in a professional career context, like a document, you know, you, you want a, a spreadsheet or, or a report or a bunch of words to be free of errors and and really compelling, persuasive, you know, well-researched and all that good stuff. And so, you know, it's tricky when you're, when you're reviewing your own writing in terms of being like kind of catching the stuff. But then it, when you put that challenge in there in terms of notice what you haven't noticed before in a way it sort of <laughs> puts your brain in a funky little loop. It's like, well, how how, how am I supposed to do that? I didn't notice it before. I'm going to notice it. And so, but then it's just like look specifically for that which you haven't looked for. I guess my my mind's thinking. Well, the first thing you you might notice might be somewhat inconsequential. Like I'm using this font is is actually mismatched in some places. Okay, quick fix doesn't matter a lot, but a little more consistency professionalism. And then and then you might notice. Any number of things like, I'm using the word indeed a lot. <laughs> that might be kind of annoying. Or if you say, hey, if I'm looking to notice something that I haven't noticed before, maybe I needed to get a fresh lens on this. Maybe get some AI tools to look at my writing and tell me some things. Like, oh, hot dog. I'm actually am kind of impressed with what with what those can do right now.
2: And think about how effective this can be in problem solving. You do the same thing over and over again. You say, well, how are we going to get out of this rut? And you say to yourself, all right, I'm going to look for something that I haven't seen before that's intrinsic to this problem. What happens before the problem occurs? What happens immediately after? And if you make it a practice to look for things that you didn't see before, you'd be amazed what drops into your lap. And you know what? This all calls upon another concept that I learned from one of my colleagues at the FBI, and I use it every single day. It's a Latin phrase, festina lente. Festina lente. It means to make haste slowly. We all have deadlines. We all need to get to the finish line. But if you don't make that haste purposefully and slowly and look around, you're going to have to start all over again. And, you know, it brings me back to one of my favorite books, called The Boys in the Boat by Daniel James Brown. It's a book from 2013. And it's about the eight-oared boat from the University of Washington that won the gold at the 1936 Olympics. They beat Hitler's boat. I mean, it was really quite the upset. It's a great book. It's about our strengths and weaknesses and that we're all part of a team. You know, the the boat is, is just as good as its weakest rower. But the reason I bring in Festina Lente is what could be a better example of having to row? Of course you wanna row quickly, you wanna win the race, but if you're not in sync with all the other rowers and you're not communicating with them, you're gonna lose. And so it means taking the time to communicate about how quickly you're going so that you can make haste slowly.
1: Very cool, lovely.
2: Okay, well, so
1: we we talked about the, the prep draft exhibit. Could you maybe walk us through In terms of step-by-step, how do I apply this process when I'm trying to solve a problem?
2: Absolutely. There are some steps within each of those, and the table of contents is broken down. And I'm going to give you one section from each of them that I think is most important. And it's going to sound blatantly obvious, but under prep, you need to define the problem. You need to say out loud, because if you assume that everybody knows what the problem is, you're all gathered, how many times have you been at a meeting and everybody says, okay, we're here to discuss X. How come we never say what X is? We need to go around the table and ask, what is everybody's perception of the problem to make sure we're all starting on the same page? That's part of the prep. And part of the draft, I think the two most important parts of draft are breaking the problem into bite-sized pieces. You know, when little kids, toddlers are learning to eat, you cut their food up into small pieces. Well, at some point, they have to learn to eat themselves. We need to break it into bite-sized pieces so that we can digest the problem. And then we need to set deadlines. There's this negative association with a deadline. It's not such a bad thing. It forces us to be creative. It forces us to find a solution. And finally, under exhibit, the two most important things are to manage contradictions. We're going to find contradictions all the time. Can't be fixed. Can't do it. This doesn't match. Manage those contradictions. Articulate them. And the second one is what I started this discussion with was kintsugi, repairing your mistakes with gold, because they're going to be mistakes the whole way. But I think it's so important to incorporate those mistakes into your solution because you're going to have to solve problems over and over and over again. And recognizing the mistakes and honoring those struggles is a great way to start to get to the solution. So within prep, draft, and exhibit, there are bite-sized pieces that you can take. And I really believe working across the professional spectrum, almost any problem can be solved this way.
1: Okay, well, let's, let's grab one. Let's grab a problem and, and sort of move step-by-step step here.
2: Sure. So let's think about... I worked with a group of nurses in the hospital after there was a shooting uh, at a movie theater in Aurora, Colorado. Do you remember? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I had a session with the shock and trauma nurses. And one of the reasons I love working with them, there's no mincing of words. They are negotiating on the front lines. They are processing the trauma that's coming through the doors. They're dealing with family members. They're dealing with medical personnel. And there is no time. You can't mince words. Every word matters. And one of them said to me, she raised her hand and she said, You know, the night of that shooting, we ran out of gurneys, Amy. We ran out of gurneys and we had to put patients over our shoulders to bring them into the emergency room. And she said, I lost it as a human being. She said, We were out of resources and I couldn't articulate anymore. And I said, Well, what did you do then? She said, I had to pull it together because I can't be an effective nurse until I can communicate not just with my colleagues, but with colleagues, patients, and families. And so without that communication, we just have to learn to pull it together. And of course, not everybody is in a shock and trauma setting. We don't work on, as you said before, so many of the people I work with are in life and death situations. Most of us don't work in those situations, but it's still so important to regroup And to say, okay, what's the immediate problem here? She lost it as a human being. She couldn't communicate. And if you can't communicate and you're on the shock and trauma ward, you need to fix that problem immediately. But yet another shock and trauma nurse who doesn't have the same reaction is going to be dealing with families and they're going to see people in panic mode. And so they're going to have different perceptions of the problem and how they're gonna solve the problem. So articulating, you do A, I'm gonna do B, and you do C. Sometimes there are time constraints, Sometimes there aren't, but we have many, many different facets to deal with. And again, this book is not about art. It's using art as the template that different people can use in a whole host of scenarios to prep, draft, and exhibit to solve their problem.
1: Okay, thank you. And, and could you share with us maybe one more top do and top don't when it comes to problem solving and how art can help us?
2: Sure. So the first top do is to recognize that you need to say what you see before you say what you think. People confuse them all the time, okay? So when we're looking at a work of art, people will say, well, I don't like that, you know, or I hate modern (laughs) art. That's not what I'm asking. I'm asking, what do you see? And so to think about the firm line of delineation between saying what you see and saying what you think what you think is very very important but you need to lay the groundwork first and i would say the top don't don't speak without thinking do the prep and draft in your head before you send an email before you press send before you pick up the phone or some so many of my clients are on the radio think before you speak And I will say this, communication is a two-way street. It's not just what you have to say, it's how it's being heard. To whom are you speaking and who is listening to you? And the prep and the draft and the exhibit are all tailored and according to whom you are working with and to whom are you communicating. Think before you speak. The top don't is don't speak without thinking and the top do is say what you see before you say what you think.
1: All right. Thank you. Well, now, Amy, could you share with us a favorite quote? Something you find inspiring.
2: I'm going to repeat the quote that I said before about Henry James at the risk of saying it twice, because it is so fundamental to me, to my work and the way I try to live my life from walking to the corner to go get a a quart of milk to helping someone in distress. It's what Henry James said, try to be the person on whom nothing is lost. And just in parentheses, that also enhances your own engagement in the world. Nothing is lost on you. You can engage with the people and the places and appreciate so much more where you are by trying to be that person on whom nothing is lost.
1: All right. And could you share a favorite study or experiment or bit of research?
2: Yeah. um, A bit of research that was just mind-boggling to me was a study done in 2009 in Jerusalem. And it was a study of radiologists and what they did is they showed a group of radiologists, MRIs and x-rays and scans. But for a control group, they also showed a photograph of the patient. So it wasn't just the x-ray of the lungs or the ribs or the, the hips. There was also an actual photograph of the person. And for those radiologists who had the photograph of the person, they found 80% more findings. The reports had were more in-depth, and they also found ancillary findings. And when they asked the physicians what could account for this 80% difference, they said, you know, it took no extra time to have a picture of the patient next to a picture of the lung, and it gave us a broader picture of the whole person. And I think about that study because sometimes we just see a cross-section of a person. We have an email, we have an x-ray, we have an MRI, and by thinking of that x-ray as in a whole person, it's going to broaden your own view of them and help them solve their problems.
1: Oh, cool. And how about a favorite book?
2: My favorite book, uh, again, to repeat what I talked about before, The Boys in the Boat by Daniel James Brown from 2013. It's about individuals and teamwork and just cheering on the underdog. I'm a huge champion of the underdog.
1: And a favorite tool, something you use to be awesome at your job?
2: When I'm completely overwhelmed and my brain is foggy, I sit back and because of the pandemic, I go to a museum online and I look at works of art, some that I know and some that I don't, and I just take a deep breath and it allows my eyes to relax and it allows my brain to simmer down and remind me to see things with refreshed eyes whenever possible.
1: Mm-hmm. And is there a key nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with your clients? They quote it back to you often.
2: Think about what you're not seeing, that pertinent negative. More often than not, when I ask what's the key takeaway from the art of perception, people say to think about what I'm not seeing and to know that it's right in front of me and to really gear our vision and our looking and our sense of critical inquiry to think about not just what we see, but what we don't see.
1: All right. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them?
2: I would point them to my website, artfulperception.com. And my books are at artfulbooks.com. And I am on social media at Amy Herman, A-O-P, as in art, O of P, perception.
1: And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs?
2: Every day that you go to work or you sit down at your desk, prepare to have your eyes opened when you don't even realize that they're closed. Every day, I want you to end the day having your eyes opened in a way that you didn't even know they were closed. And it can be the smallest thing that you noticed, just we talked about what you didn't see before, but know that your eyes are closed and make the effort to open them and use art to do that when you can.
1: (laughs) All right, Amy, thank you. This has been a treat and I I wish you much luck and fun and all your problem solving.
2: Thank you so much. It was a real pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: I really loved Amy's perspective about the pertinent negative, not just what you see, but what you don't see, which might be very helpful. And I think it's, it's surprisingly easy when I ask myself, what am I not seeing? What have I not looked at? What have I not asked? Part of me wondered, is like, is that really going to work? You know, it's like, well, if I didn't see it, if I didn't ask it, it's because I can't think of it. And yet, when I prompt myself well, what haven't I asked or what haven't I seen, it really does prompt me to look in different ways and get some more good stuff. So thanks to Amy for that. Again, the show notes, the transcript, and the links to ads we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP736.